show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy Leary. What are we serving today? Hi Tim. Hello. Uh, for the first time ever I think we are in sync when it comes to drinks. Exactly the same in sync. Mm. Not just a beer and a beer but very specifically. There he is. Hogarth. Hogarth Golden Ale, which is, um, so this is a collaboration between Ansbach and Hobday, who are very nice uh, brewers uh, just next to me, actually, on the beer mile, Bermondsey beer mile, and Tate Museums. And we bought this in a gift shop, didn't we? <laughs> we did. I, I was quite proud of us that we uh, spent a long time perusing what the gift, had, uh, the gift shop had to offer. Mm-hmm. And all we did was laugh at a book about poo, and then we bought some beer. <laughs> we did We did enjoy that book about poo. Um, it was very well written, in my opinion. It had twists you didn't see coming. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we just bought some beer with my Tate members discount. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it to good use. Exactly. Um, and that's because we went to see the Tate Britain exhibit all about Hogarth. Hogarth in Europe, to mm-hmm. be specific, it was called. And we did that because we've mentioned Hogarth a few times on this podcast uh, previously and thought it was about time we gave him his proper dues and explored. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a very tiny brief background on Hogarth before we get started for anyone who doesn't know who he is. He's an 18th century artist. He was most famous for his satirical engravings and paintings. He grew up around the bustling London scene of theatres and bawdy houses and coffee houses and was very much part of that enlightenment scene from the early 18th century. Um, He hung out with intellectuals and liberals and humanitarians who were all very distinctly middle class. So Hogarth's father, in fact, opened a coffee house for people who spoke Latin. Now, does that sound a bit niche to you? Would you recommend that as a business venture? I mean, 18th century, maybe. Not right now. I think it would bomb. <laughs> sure. Well, even in the 18th century, it did bomb. It was it was not successful. Um, he, In fact, he got into so much debt that he had to go to prison. So Hogarth's father was sent to debtor's prison. Uh, you know, if you can go back and listen to our episode about the coffee houses, about when they started to be in decline. Um, as they were in those forms from the old, the older penny universities, not not kind of like how Starbucks is now, obviously. Um, so perhaps it wasn't the great, the best idea. Um, possibly because of um, his father going to debtors' prison, he always took work very seriously. He became a silversmith's apprentice at fifteen, so he was very self reliant. He wanted to learn a trade. Um, and I think, in a way, that's all you need to know about Hogarth, that short intro, to get a sense of where he's coming from in the artworks that uh, we went to then see through the exhibition. So before we get stuck into some specific pieces, what were your overall impressions? Um, 
I didn't expect to laugh as much as I did. Mm. It was very funny. Um, yeah, because it's just timeless. Because obviously, it's a lot of his paintings are um, paintings. His artwork is to do with drunk people, and it was quite interesting to see how. Yeah, it's who as human beings we are just a mess. <laughs> Whether it's the 18th century or current day, it was so relatable. Um, and also a lot of his paintings, like you could spend ages looking at them because there was just so much to look at and it was details, lots going on. It was almost like a where's Wally because mm. you just spot something new every time you looked at it. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And also the way that they'd kind of laid the exhibition out, they had, you know, sections from London, Amsterdam, Venice, and it was quite interesting to see, again, that the Brits have not changed. It was that kind of messy laddish behavior in the streets of london whereas in italy it was all masquerade balls and quite high end and everyone looked lovely in their gowns and their masks and go over to the netherlands the dutch guys were you know black facing and (laughs) it was all a bit (laughs) yeah um but even with that i think a lot of the time the brits just came off the worst because we're just a mess (laughs) They did, yeah. Even even worse than the Dutch doing blackface. Um, it, it was it was funny, wasn't it? I think you've I think you've nailed it. Like it was um, it was quite easy to think uh, to uh, decide where you were in Europe from the pictures without even reading any of the captions because their approaches mm-hmm. to drinking were so different. And yeah, as we found quite a few times, whether it's like um, ancient Mesopotamia and Greece or it's nineteenth century Paris. The depictions of human drunkenness really don't change because our, our reaction to alcohol hasn't changed in our entire history. So, yeah, it does have that kind of timeless comedy to it. Um, mm-hmm. With the uh, the thing about it uh, being um, uh, quite, you know, illustrative, like a, a, a Where's Wally you said as well, it always reminds me of comic strips. And you see that he creates lots of sequential pieces as well, just like you would if you were reading a comic. So we see it first in what's called his moral works when he sort of starts doing moralist stuff in the uh, 1730s. And the earliest sort of series of that he created was um, six scenes that were called A Harlot's Progress and appeared first as paintings, but the paintings are lost. And then it was published as engravings. And this depicts the fate of a country girl who comes to the city and very quickly falls into sex work. Uh, the six scenes are chronological. They start with her meeting aboard, um, and then they end <laughs> uh, with a funeral ceremony that follows the character's death because she died of venereal disease. So um, she she didn't have a great time, all in all, <laughs> country girl coming to the big city. Is that something you can empathise with, Lyric? Uh, yeah, I had to. That's why I left London. I could see it happening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and then that was that was very successful and followed up uh in 1733 but with a rake's progress so this was uh eight pictures that depicted the reckless life of tom rakewell who's the son of a rich merchant and he spends all of his money on luxurious living services from prostitutes gambling um, and they ultimately end their time in the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which was for the uh, mentally infirm at the time. A- again, do you, is that something you uh, empathise with? Sounds, sounds like a good night out. 
<laughs> I want to pick up on a couple of plates uh, from the Rake's Progress in particular. So number three is called The Orgy. Um, and I mentioned this one when we did our Halloween special on The Devil. And I, I uh, mentioned the Hellfire Club in Britain and how mm-hmm. they would kind of get together and they would have sort of like fake religious ceremonies, but really it was an, ex- you know, an excuse to get very drunk and misbehave. So the image that Hogarth has painted here is supposedly inspired by the Hellfire Club. So tying back to a previous episode, the, the general orgy scene we're seeing is meant to have been potentially witnessed in some form by him. Uh, anything from the scene uh, that we see before us that you want to pick up? Um, there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I remember when we were reading this that um, it was the, I can't quite remember what was written, but it's something to do with the sex workers setting fire to the world um, at the back of the kind of whole scene. Yes. It's almost like she's wiser than they all think and that's her kind of way of kind of voicing her opinion yeah it's quite interesting that Hogarth made that observation and painted that in yeah there's a lot of destruction going on it's Mm -hmm. quite it's a chaotic scene I wouldn't describe it as sexy at all it's more sort of dangerous yeah when you think of orgy I mean Everyone's fully clothed for one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Although there is a lady in the front who's either I can't decide whether she's taking her clothes off or putting them back on. I think that I remember reading that because there's a fella to the right hand side who's looking over to her and supposedly she's kind of enticing him by rolling down her mm-hmm. lingerie. So I think that's what she's doing there. Kind of you want some? <laughs> what I can tell you is that um, this was actually uh, the Rose Tavern in Covent Garden. This is a depiction mm. of. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they got themselves a copy and put it up there. <laughs> because that's what I would do <laughs> if I was the proprietor of the Rose Tavern and someone painted this. Yeah. Um, the the <laughs> next plate is the other one I want to talk about, which is uh, plate four, called The Arrest. So this is when Tom Rakewell has gotten into lots of debt from all of his gambling and drinking, all the nefarious sorts of things. I wanted to see if you knew who he was being arrested by in this image. It's quite hard because this image is quite blurry, but um, there seems to be a person with like a a rabbit's face. (laughs) Can you see that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right okay I, I see here pointing towards no now what you want to be looking for in terms of detail is these are these are um soldiers these are arresting officers who have come to take tom roquel and they have something distinctive on their hats oh are they welsh guards they are welsh guards because they've got Yay! leeks on their heads that's how you spot a sneaky welshman is he wearing a leek on his head <laughs> I, I, the, it's the rabbit's face that's throwing me. What's that all about? I don't know. <laughs> I could not. I could not tell you. Um, so these these two sort of early moral works, these sequential pieces, they were so popular uh, that people started pirating them. 
Um, Mm -hmm. and you know unscrupulous print sellers would be able to you know knock a few off and make some money Hogarth was obviously not happy about this because that should be his money so he lobbied parliament for greater legal control over the reproduction of his work and other artists work and that resulted in the engravers copyright act which was also known as Hogarth's act and that became law Mm -hmm. in June of 1735 and that is the very first copyright law to deal with visual works, as well as the first that recognises authorial rights of an individual artist. So when we're all being careful about copyright laws now, that's where it came from. Hogarth's popular kind of comic series of uh, Don't Get Arrested by Welshmen. Well done him. Yeah. Um, See, that's Welsh are good for something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we've discovered that they're the progenitor of many things during our investigations. Yeah. Half and half not, being the best. Half and half. Yeah, I was going to say not all of them. <laughs> not all of them good. Um, next one I want to talk about is a modern midnight conversation, and that is a piece from seventeen thirty-three. Uh, I think you you sort of seen from the moral works that sometimes he's got a message, but he manages to put bits of comedy in there. And I think with all of his pieces, as we saw through the exhibit, there's this sliding scale of when something is more comedy, when something is sort of morality in the middle, and I think on another side when it's propaganda. So for me, this is one of the more comedy works. Um, and again, this is possibly displayed in a tavern. So what what are you seeing from a modern midnight conversation? Um, this is definitely one of the kind of Where's Wally type ones, because there are a lot of characters. There's 11 men in a pub. And they're all at different points of kind of the evening slash drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite nice. Like I was saying earlier that a lot of it is quite timeless. And I do think people would look at this and you can kind of spot, oh, that's that kind of drunk. That's that kind of drunk. You've got a chap with his arms folded, kind of leaning back in the chair with a bit of a defiant look on his face. So he's probably at that point of drunkenness where he's debating or arguing with people (laughs) belligerent and then yeah just a belligerent drunk and then you've got another guy there sitting smoking the pipe looking straight at the camera as if to say you know i'm over this (laughs) i'm better than this (laughs) and then you've got two chaps gossiping at the back another one getting a bit leery with his cup in the air shouting um and then at the other end of the table, it gets a little bit more drunk. You've got one guy with his hand to his head, looking a bit despairingly like he might be about to throw up. Um, you've got one guy sat on a chair. He's trying to light his pipe, but he's actually set fire to his sleeve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another bloke. He's just completely fallen off for his chair. He's lying across the front of the floor. And above him, you've got a guy propping himself up with a chair whilst pouring a glass of punch on said guy's head lying on the floor. So, yeah, there's just a lot of drunken mess. <laughs> there is. one of the... But also... Sorry, carry on. I was going to say, one of, the, one of the details I like in this is that despite it being called a modern midnight conversation, the clock in the background tells us that it's actually 4am. <laughs> yeah, that's literally what I was about to say. <laughs> uh, I just, it's such a good joke to kind of be like, yeah, yeah we're, having, we're having sort of midnight activities and no one realises what time it is yet. We've all been there. We've all been like, yeah. oh, it's still drinking a clock. Oh no, it's 4am, we should all go to bed. <laughs> but there's like little subtle things that add to that as well, like all the candles, they've all burnt out. So mm-hmm. 
that's another thing where they've just done they don't realize how late it is the candles have gone out but they're still going for it so this piece was again really popular and i mean a lot of Hogarth was super popular. He was sort of like, in a way, one of the first mass-produced artists in, in Britain, certainly. Um, but this got mass-produced on punch bowls and mugs. You know, that you can see there's like a punch bowl in the middle of the table and people really like to celebrate their Chinese ceramics. And then this image itself of people drinking from the punch bowl ended up on a punch bowl. And they're producing it in China 20 years after Hogarth's death. So this wasn't even like a quick fashionable thing. His legacy really endured. Um, you see in other paintings by Hogarth that China is this symbol of wealth, um, like in his painting uh, Marriage à la Mode, uh, and particularly around the tea service because tea was still very expensive at the time. So in fact, if you see a teapot, that suggests more wealth than if you're seeing a big punch bowl, because obviously punch was kind of cheaper really than the tea. Mm-hmm. Um, next one I want to look at is Charity in the Cellar. And this is a piece from 1739. Um, do you want to describe it before I say anything else about it? Yes. Um, so it's another group of drunk men. <laughs> um, they're in uh, a cellar. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of empty bottles in front of them. And they're all sat in a pose together um one is kind of draped a cloth over his head presumably to make him look like a woman um he's holding two bottles of uh, i presume it's wine or beer he's holding two bottles where his boobs are and he's essentially breastfeeding two of the other men whilst another one looks on so it's already quite funny when you look at it that's what you see first but then you look over to the right hand side and they're actually mimicking a statue of Charity breastfeeding her children. <laughs> so, so they're mocking that. And also like little, again, subtle things. Because there's so much going on. You're looking at these guys, you're looking at the bottles, you're looking at the statue. It takes a while to notice that in the background there's a guy completely passed out drunk. <laughs> it's just little <laughs> added extras that you notice the more you look. <laughs> it's funny. I, it took me a while to notice that they were specifically imitating the Charity statue because at first it looks like a religious painting it looks a little bit like a sort of um you know virgin mary or someone holding kind of christ on the cross they there's that kind of setup but yeah um the, apparently this situation was marking a commitment by some friends in real life to drink a hogshead of claret in one night <laughs> Uh, hogshead <laughs> is 63 gallons <laughs> so um Hence, hence the levels of drunkenness. But this, as well as being a potentially, you know, witnessed scene, it could also be a bit of a satire um, that people here were avoiding the French import tax by going via Italy instead. So there were there were drinks that the upper classes had traditionally imported from France that they were no longer supposed to do because of wars. And so what they were doing was going to get shipped to Italy and then over again to avoid that import tax. <laughs> I think that's possibly a comment going on here. Um, <laughs> next funny piece. I hope everyone's following along with these pieces, by the way, because I'm going to put the links in the uh, in the description. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this is called Francis Matthew Schutz in Bed, and from 1755. And I think this might be one of my favourites. Um, do, yeah. do you want to say what's going on? It's so good. Well, it's interesting because. 
it depending on when you viewed this painting you may have seen something different mm. we'll come on to that but um yeah what we can see before us is a man who's obviously wealthy there's lots of silk the bed has got four posts around it it's obviously a really well-to-do wealthy man um and normally to expect a painting of somebody with his wealth to be very flattering but unfortunately he is in his bed um with a bucket or a porcelain pot uh and he is quite grotesquely throwing up into the pot (laughs) (laughs) he's he's got like um a towel or a wet kind of cloth on his head so he's obviously feeling quite rough and yeah i think you've you can give us the background on it. It's great. Yeah. It's so this, so shady. <laughs> this was this is a painting that was supposedly commissioned by Francis's wife, Susan. Uh, and I've got such a strong image of who Susan is, uh, just through the fact that she commissioned this painting. But it was really an attempt to curb his bad behaviour. Uh, not only his drinking, uh, but also there's a Latin inscription above the painting, which reads, uh, Vixi puellis nuper idoneus. And which means not long ago, I kept it in good order for the girls. <laughs> <laughs> so we know he had a history of this. And in fact, years later, he stood trial for committing adultery with his brother's wife <laughs> in 1771. Um, so this is a this is a shaming and revenge painting that Hogarth yeah. seems seemingly happy to be commissioned by. Do you want to tell the story of why people might have seen two different versions of this? Yeah, so um, it was quite interesting actually because they, I think they they informed us quite well at the exhibition as to how they found this out as well because if I hadn't known this I'd have been like, surely that's just made up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's marketing bullshit. <laughs> um, but no, like a, a lot of people would kind of x-ray them or they'd kind of clean them and they'd soon discover like ah this isn't actually what the original painting looked like and it showed some examples of x-rays of Hogarth's work and how they could see what had been repainted and this was a good example of that so um I think it was after the passing of Francis Schutz um his descendants thought it was a disrespectful piece in his memory and so they had it repainted. Um, they wanted the vomit and the chamber pot out of existence. So they repainted over that to just display him lying in bed reading a book. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't a revenge painting anymore. <laughs> Historical photoshopping. They were getting rid of all the mm-hmm. uh, unsightliness. And then it was only restored <laughs> properly in 1990. Mm. So you could possibly have seen this before and it had been a man lying in bed reading a book, which boring. But if you go now, you can see someone being sick. <laughs> yes. I highly, highly recommend, by the way, watching uh, people restore paint, do restoration jobs on paintings where they do all the x-rays and they uncover dirt. And do this. I spend hours of my life watching painting restoration on YouTube. <laughs> it's so therapeutic <laughs> and interesting. I love it. Uh, it just makes me think of that woman that did the Jesus one and got it wrong. Yeah, I'm talking about professionals, not the woman who did the Jesus <laughs> one. <laughs> All right, we're going to uh, approach the big ones then, I think, in terms of... I mean, so many of Hogarth's paintings are about drinking. We're only bringing you some of them. Do go and explore all of them. Um, but I think in terms of reputation and legacy, these next two are probably the peak. And this is mm-hmm. in 1751... 
where we get Beer Street and Gin Lane. So Hogarth engraved Beer Street to show a happy city drinking the good English beverage, in contrast to Gin Lane, which shows the effects um, of drinking gin are much more potent, they cause problems for society, it's just generally a bad thing to do. So let's start, I guess, with the, with the good one, with Beer Street. Um, mm. Do you want to do a little description of what you're seeing there? Yeah. So this is very, very, very busy. Lots going on. So I've just, I've made some notes. I've got some bullet points. Oh, okay. Going on. So obviously he's created this in order to sing the praises of beer and how as a society we can still function well whilst drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it includes, on the left, uh, two corpulent men hold big mugs of beer and one of them holds a huge leg of beef in his left hand. So... Obviously indicates there that they're very well fed, they've got food, they're happy, they're doing well. Uh, in front of those guys, there's a man sitting holding a beer while sharing a romantic moment with a woman. So, you know, there's no kind of nasty sexual assault or anything nasty going on there. Just a happy couple having a beer. Uh, to their right, there's a young boy with mugs hanging on a rope. Suggests that he's going around selling beer. Um, he's peeping into um, the pawnbrokers to hand them a beer through the peephole. Uh, the pawn shop is in a state of disrepair. Um, that's a purposeful um, thing that Hogarth's done there because it indicates that people don't need the pawnbrokers whilst we live in a society that drinks beer because they're all doing really, really well and don't need to pawn stuff. Um, the other buildings, however, are well maintained. The church has a steeple on top, which is a sign that people are behaving morally in this world of beer. Uh, on the bottom right, there's another portly man enjoying a beer next to a pile of books and a basket of fish. Um, on the left, there's a painter. Um, he's in ragged clothes and he's painting a cheery picture of men and women dancing around a mountain of barley. Uh, on top of the roofs, you can see construction workers taking a break, drinking to celebrate, whilst another barrel of beer is being lifted up to them. And then in the centre, we've got a wealthy woman in a chair waiting as her chairman. They've temporarily put her chair down to have a nice beer. So, yeah, just lots of people getting shit done and drinking beer and looking happy and healthy. There's a poem at the bottom of the uh, engraving as well. Shall I read it? It says, beer, happy produce of our isle, can sinewy strength impart, and wearied with fatigue and toil, can cheer each manly heart. Labour and art upheld by thee successfully advance. We quaff thy balmy juice with glee, and water leave to France. (laughs) Genius of health, (laughs) thy grateful taste, rivals the cup of Jove, and warms each English generous breast with liberty and love. Or loathe, if you want it to rhyme. Um, my favourite <laughs> bit of that is obviously the dig at France. Um, you can have the water, we're not going to drink it. I doubt very much that France were drinking water when they had all of that wine that we weren't allowed to import. But, you know, still, nice <laughs> bit of xenophobia uh, going on throughout mm. Hogarth, to be honest. <laughs> One thing I read after we went to the exhibition, actually, was that um, the reason that these prints, Spear Street and Jin Lin, they look a little different to his other work, it's because he actually, he wanted to target these prints at the kind of just popular market rather than fine arts, because he 
was passionate about getting this message across to as many people as possible. Um, so the prints are actually in thicker lines, mm. a lot more bold when you look at them. And that was just to ensure that the quality wasn't lost when it was reprinted and reprinted. Um, yeah. Which is quite interesting. I quite like this kind of thick black line. It kind of reminds me of like Escher's kind of work, that thick black and white. Yes. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It does have a more modern illustrative feel to it, uh, more detail. Um, there's uh, just below the poem as well, it says, published according to Act of Parliament, February 1751. So I think to find out why it was an Act of Parliament and why he wanted more people to see it, we should move on to uh, the next piece as a comparison to Beer Street. So before we do, just a quick reminder of gin craze. We have sort of spoken about this uh, before, but um, around this time, there's a really sharp increase in the popularity of gin, which was is now called the gin craze. It started in the early 18th century after a series of legislative actions in the late 17th century. Um, it impacted that importing and manufacture of alcohol in London. So we had the Prohibition of 1678, which barred popular French brandy imports, and the forced disbandment as well of the London Guild of Distillers in 1690. And those people had previously been the only legal manufacturers of alcohol. Because they were disbanded, it meant there was this increased production and therefore consumption of domestic gin, so people could uh, make their own. And then the first attempt at legislation was in a parliamentary bill of 1729 which required each retailer to then take out a licensing cost of 20 pounds and put a duty of five shillings per gallon on gin so the result of that was to try and suppress the distillation of good gin well the result of it was to suppress the distillation of good gin and to increase the production of kind of these inferior products like this this bad gin that supposedly was rotting people's minds which was also called parliamentary brandy because they were being forced to uh distill it illegally in the act of parliament uh, a bill of 1735 imposed taxes and license charges on the retailers in a further attempt to try and curtail that that distribution of gin and the preamble to this act sort of saying why it was necessary uh, I have got written here. It says, Whereas the drinking of spiritous liquors or strong waters is becoming very common, especially amongst the people of lower and inferior ranks, the constant and excessive use whereof tends greatly to the destruction of their healths, rendering them unfit for useful labour and business, debauching their morals, and inciting them to perpetrate all manner of vices. The act itself um, provided further impositions that, that caused anger amongst uh, people who were really sort of enjoying the gin. And there was a lot of difficulty enforcing that in, like, in reality, in the law. So it was being sold by other names to try and go under the radar. So we find that gin is referred to as Lady's Delight, as Cuckold's Comfort, as King Theodore of Corsica, and as Strip Me Naked. <laughs> <laughs> So if anyone asks if you would like a strip be naked, um, it's a gin. Say yes. Say yes in, in either scenario. Just say yes. No, I double, I double check. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so they tried to put that act through. In, well, they did in 1735, but it was repealed in 1743. 
because it just wasn't working. Everything was just going underground and the quality of the gin getting worse. Then we get this friend of Hogarth's, Henry Fielding, who became a lawyer and also a magistrate for Westminster. And he was also a dramatist and an author. And then he wrote this piece in 1751, where we are now with these two images, which was called Inquiry into the Causes of the Late Increase of Robbers, etc. <laughs> I love a title that has etc. <laughs> et in it. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going to be specific, just etc. Um, it's all that shit. Exactly. <laughs> with some, uh, he put some proposals in it for trying to solve the problem of the gin craze. Uh, and in a section of this, he drew attention to the evils that were associated with drinking gin. This odious vice, indeed the parent of all others, first introduced by the Danes. Um, a new kind of drunkenness is lately sprung up amongst us, which, if not put a stop to, will infallibly destroy a great part of the inferior people. The intoxicating draught itself disqualifies them from using any honest means to acquire it, at the same time that it removes all sense of fear and shame and emboldens them to commit every wicked and desperate enterprise. Um, <laughs> it says, What must become of the infant who is conceived in gin, with the poisonous distillations of which it is nourished both in the womb and at the breast? So, this writing and also Hogarth's prints were both published in 1751 specifically to support the Gin Act this new piece of legislation they were trying to get through to address the gin craze. Um, so at this point, I think you should describe kind of what we see in the image of Gin Lane. <laughs> I mean, he went in on this. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> you thought that um, Fielding's description was a bit much? Listen to what's in this picture. <laughs> Just, this, this, there's a lot. So I guess... We'll start at the centre. There's a woman st sitting at the top of some stairs. Um, her clothes are all ragged and ripped. Um, she's completely unaware of what state she's in. Her top is completely exposed in her breasts. She's got sores on her legs. She's dropped her baby without even realising her baby's about to fall to its probable death down the stairs. Um, and she just has no idea of the state that she's in. Um, Below her, there's a guy in a soldier's outfit. He is so malnourished, he's pretty much like a skeleton. Um, he's got an empty gin glass in his hand. He's got a sad little dog looking over him. And there's a little um, piece of paper coming out of the basket that he's got in his other hand that says the downfall of gin on it. Um, to the left of that woman, we can see the pawnbrokers. So unlike the beer image the pawnbrokers are in full swing here there's people selling their items to try and buy more gin uh, we can also see some people um, fighting with a, a dog over a bone obviously signifies how uh, sad and malnourished everyone's getting with the gin they're having to fight over bones with dogs um, on the right hand side people um, they're feeding gin to each other, including children and even a baby. Uh, there's a woman there with her little newborn and she's literally tipping gin into its mouth. Um, and then they thought, yeah, this this isn't strong enough. We need to go further. There's a guy just randomly wandering around with a baby on a stake, just wandered around the street with a, a dead baby on a stake. Um, there's a chap that's hung himself up in one of the empty shops 
uh, in front of the distillery on the right, um, there's a fight broken out. People are hitting each other with chairs and hammers. And also, like I mentioned, um, in the beer image, the town was thriving and the only shop in a state of disrepair was the pawnbrokers. Whereas here, most of the buildings in the background look really run down. Um, the only things that aren't in poor condition are the gin distillery, the pawn shop and the undertakers. Um yeah, it's just very bleak. The more you look at it, the more you just see kind of dead looking bodies or babies being hurt or fed gin. It's it's dark. <laughs> it's it's dark and it is bleak. The question is though, is do you also find this darkly comic or not? Uh I do. I've got a very dark sense of humour. Yeah, same. No, I, <laughs> I I think this is um I think it's quite a difficult one to answer this because so much, you know, like everything else in his work was satirical. They had elements of comedy. I think when it comes to Beer Street and Gin Lane, they're so clearly propaganda. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it was to support a specific act of parliament. It's the, the pictures aren't at all nuanced in any way. But we know he comes from this tradition of satire. I think it's kind of difficult to know whether it like with our with the distance we have from the reality of the gin craze, whatever it was, I think it's hard for us to know whether this is a scene that would have horrified people when they looked at it, Trudy, or whether they, like us, would have gone, oh, isn't that awful, but kind of laughed at it as well because it's so over the yes. top. I just don't know what the answer is. But that's that the is. thing. I do feel like, because when you first look at it, you think, oh, God, this is bad. But then there's those little things that you spot that you think surely people would go, yeah, this isn't true. This is daft. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, for example, the, the woman letting the baby fall to her death was apparently based on a true story of Judith Dufour, who strangled her baby so she could sell its clothes for gin money. However, I don't know of any specific reference to this being true. And they were very clear to point out that she was French, which makes me think again... <laughs> It's a bit of like, <laughs> well, we want to tell a really horrible story, but maybe we should just make a French just so that everyone dislikes her even more. Um, there, there is another poem accompanying it uh, written by Hogarth's friend, the Reverend James Townley, which is, Gin, cursed friend with fury fraught, makes human race a prey. It enters by a deadly draught and steals our life away. Virtue and truth driven to despair, its rage compels to fly, but cherishes with hellish care, theft, murder, perjury. Damned cup that on the vitals preys, that liquid fire contains, which madness to the heart conveys and rolls it through the veins. So, um, just in case you weren't clear, (laughs) yeah, yet more of a compelling anti-gin case. (laughs) Um, did you know this area as well that we're looking at, that it's set in Gin Lane, is apparently uh, St. Giles, which is, if you were listening last episode, to, whoopsies, um, the beer flood, the great beer mm-hmm. flood in London that happened, happened where barrels of porter exploded. And it was, we, we said even then it was in this kind of like deprived area and people died and they made up stories about how they were drinking the porter mm. out of the gutter and more people died from alcohol poisoning afterwards than the initial explosion which i said is probably not true this is the same <laughs> group of people like you know there's we're how how long about 100 years or so out of the beer flood happening 
But um, here we go. It's the mm-hmm. same depiction of these people in the streets, apparently kind of getting drunk in the gutter and not living their lives, as opposed to just being poor. <laughs> <laughs> because there's so much class snobbery, not only through Hogarth's work, I think, which I think is probably to do with his, you know, his background and, and um, hanging out with all these middle class people and not wanting to be like his father and be in debtor's prison. But also you see it throughout all the commentary on the Gin Act. And like where they're making the case for it, all of it is about inferior people being corrupted by it. None of it says, oh, gin is bad for all people. There's definitely like this this idea that the upper classes wanted to start drinking gin because they never used to. They used to just drink brandy. And then when they couldn't drink brandy mm. anymore, they were like, well, we want to drink the gin because it's nice. And it's you can put it in these pretty glasses and dress it up as punch. But the lower classes are drinking it and we don't want to drink the same as them. That's my theory. Mm. I don't think it was... Yeah as destructive i'm sure there are a lot of alcoholics because you know you get that in poverty but i don't think the reason for their sort of misery and crime and corruption was the same drink that the upper classes wanted to drink as opposed to just the fact that they were living in horrible conditions i think you're right there Mm. good because i was prepared to fight you um if you didn't (laughs) (laughs) i've had i've had some booze i'm ready to fight you if you disagree with me have you had some gins? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had some gin before I got on this beer, obviously. Um, so there were, I think there were other examples of class snobbery in Hogarth. Um, there are other prints where you where you see this play out. So there's the Four Stages of Cruelty, which was also published in 1751, where Hogarth depicts the cruel treatment of animals which he saw around him and suggests what's going to happen to people if they carry on in this manner, being cruel to animals. So in the first print, there are these scenes of boys torturing dogs and cats and other animals. It's pretty horrible. Um, I think you've got the image there. And and it centers around this poorly dressed boy. So, you know, clearly like poor committing the violent act of torture upon a dog and the person pleading with him to stop uh, and offering food is a well-dressed boy so they're clearly saying that the person who has money would never commit Mm -hmm. such heinous acts um and then in the fourth image of this series which is titled the reward of cruelty it shows the the same person tom his withering corpse being publicly dissected uh, by scientists after his execution by hanging and there's a noose still around his neck and what i'll tell you first of all is that um this was in support of yet another parliamentary act so there was a (laughs) thing called the murder act in 1751 and that was a proposal to allow the public dissection of criminals who'd been hanged for murder So previously, you couldn't just publicly dissect someone's body, but they were like, well, if they're a criminal, I think we should be allowed to do it. So this is what this was created in support of. Um, Any any other reflections on those images? I quite like that in the reward of cruelty, there is a dog kind of getting his reward, which is the intestines of the guy that's getting dissected. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I spotted that one as well, because the first image you were like, oh, the poor... The poor doggies. Um, and H- Hogarth was clearly a fan of animals, uh, as we shall continue to see, I think, uh, in the next few images. But yeah, that was the one that really struck me as well, is that the, the doggies eating his spleen or intestines or something. 
Um, so I think that one is probably slightly of dubious morals <laughs> in terms of who's likely to commit a crime and what rights we have to their bodies afterwards. Um, but the the next one, I think possibly I'm more in support of, which was the cockpit that he created in 1759. And... This was him really ridiculing the English for their passion for cockfighting. He wasn't into blood sports, animal sports. We talked about uh, cockfighting and such in our Shakespeare episode because it was, uh, you know, cruel sports were popular throughout the tav- taverns for quite a long time. And in this image, at the centre of the crowd, we get Lord Albemarle Bertie. Uh, and it takes place in the Royal Cockpit in Birdcage Walk, which is uh, St. James area, St. James Park. And there's this kind of Mm -hmm. chaotic crowd gathered to watch a fight between the two birds. And then there's also the shadow of a debtor suspended in a basket above um, that cast a shadow across the pit. And then there's a pit ticket in the the bottom centre, which is kind of where you pay your admission to the fight. So I think it's distaste for animal sports, also kind of cautionary tales about gambling and, again, making Mm -hmm. the English look like idiots a bit. And again, I think what makes the painting for me here is the dog again. There's a little dog near the back watching over and he looks genuinely sad. Yeah, he's really sad. It's kind of disgusted. It's, yeah, it's one of, one of the many times in his paintings where a dog is... I, I feel like sometimes the dog is Hogarth. Sometimes I think it's the audience, but it's definitely like an outside eye judging us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that was the cockpit. Um, mm-hmm. So how about you? Because I, I, now we're sort of talking about animals and I definitely noticed a prevalence of dogs uh, throughout Hogarth. <laughs> Did you have kind of favourite animal moments through the exhibit? So many amazing dogs. But there was one that stole the show and his name was Trump. Mm. <laughs> our favourite Trump. I mean, it's not it's not a tough yeah. battle, but definitely our favourite Trump. <laughs> The best Trump. So, yeah, Trump was Hogarth's little pug. And he loved him to bits and he put him in lots of his pictures. Um, uh, to the point where it actually became a way that people used to mock him. Um, there was a satirical poem in 1750 uh, written um, where a group of Londoners were discussing an engraving hanging in a print seller's window. Um, one bystander is struck by the equal treatment that the artist has given to his two subjects, a man and his dog. And so the other explains to him then, "'Tis Hogarth himself and his friend, in separate companions, and therefore you see, cheek by jowl, they are drawn in familiar degree." Um, and that painting that they're describing is actually the painter in his pug, which is um, a self-portrait that Hogarth drew. Um he drew it in 1745 and it's an interesting portrait because it's him he's drawn himself as a portrait within the portrait it's kind of drawn in a frame so it's almost like trump his pug is actually the sitter and he's the star of the show um and yeah it's his fondness for dogs is really well doc- documented across a lot of his paintings we've already discussed it but um yeah trump was Definitely. Well, apparently Trump's one of the most recognisable dogs in the history of art, which I did not realise, but uh, I read that a lot when I was um, doing research for this. I feel like Um, I would recognise him if I saw him anywhere else now. 
But if you ask yeah. me, like, what's a famous dog in art? I think I'd probably go back to the St. Bernard's Barrels episode we did. Oh, maybe, yeah. That's probably one I would think, I think... of first. But but, yeah, but he does appear in more. This. You're as a specific dog rather than a generic dog. Yeah, so Trump, he, he obviously had the starring role in this painter and his pug. Uh, but he pops up in a lot of paintings. Um, the rake that you talked about, he's uh, he's in those. But I think my absolute favourite painting from the whole exhibition was um, Captain Lord George Graham in his cabin. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was so good. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a group of men in Captain Lord George's cabin. Um, they're, pl- they're listening to music. So they've got a servant there playing the drum. But also Trump appears. <laughs> And it's just so good. He's up on his hind legs. He's got um, a, a wig on. The captain's wig is just on his head. Um, he's apparently reading a sheet of music that's propped up in front of him. He's holding a scroll. So he's like his own little character there. It's so good. I definitely recommend looking it's, at that one. <laughs> the sheet music is propped on a wine glass um as well detail which i like to think was also his he's had his wine now he's joining in with the singing (laughs) (laughs) so good yeah um but yeah it's quite interesting that um we noticed this at the exhibition as well actually that he's trump is a pug but when you look at these paintings you don't think of a pug um he doesn't look like kind of modern day pugs um so obviously trump was the product of an age before dog shows and breeding standards Mm. um but one thing that trump did share with our 21st century pugs and it goes back to hogarth's kind of views on animal cruelty um trump's ears weren't cropped Uh, a lot of dogs back then they would have their ears cropped but um hogarth refused to have his ears cropped which is why he's got nice long ears in the um in the depictions of him. Because he loves dogs so much. Because he loves them and he doesn't want to cut their ears. Um, also, interestingly, we spoke earlier about x-rays of um, paintings and restorations and how we find hidden things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of Hogarth's final self-portraits, uh, so he, he painted that to celebrate his appointment as Sar- Sergeant Painter to the King. X-rays of that have shown that he'd originally depicted a pug, perhaps Trump, um, peeing on pictures piled on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd obviously added that like little, uh, little um, funny bit to the painting, but obviously he thought better of it and painted over it. Um, but yeah, his his infatuation with dogs and in particular pugs would often confuse and anger a lot of people. Um, People wouldn't understand why they, he gave them so much kind of presence in his paintings. And also pugs uh, back then were more favoured with materialistic people, elite people, fashionable women. So people didn't quite understand why he had kind of this pug that kind of went against all of his satirical work. Uh, and a lot of people would mock him. Uh, they would paint pieces with a pug in place of Hogarth. Um, there were a number of paintings where people had kind of depicted him as kind of like this weird mutant half pug half human mm-hmm. uh, one of the particularly nasty ones it was an anonymous print commissioned by John Wilkes and Charles Churchill 
in um, 1763. So it was long after the four stages of cruelty and his self-portrait. And so obviously people knew his kind of feelings with regards to animal cruelty. Um, and this print that was commissioned is really nasty. It shows two men quite savagely beating a dog and causing all kinds of cruelty to him. The dog's bleeding on the floor. It's not a nice um, painting. And it's thought that in retaliation to that piece is why Hogarth created a painting called The Bruiser. Mm. Uh, now, that painting is almost like a mirror image of the painter and its dog. It's that frame with a, a kind of self-portrait. But the self-portrait of Hogarth is replaced by this bear, which is apparently um, Charles Churchill, one of the guys in that um, commission piece that's beating the dog. And uh, next to Charles Churchill in this piece, The Bruiser, you've got Trump there again. Um, but he is quite openly urinating on a letter um, from Churchill. So it's a bit of a kind of smack talk from Hogarth in response to some of the nasty things that people were saying and painting about him. <laughs> yeah, he was not he was not above a bit of smack talk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, people still kind of struggle to explain his preference for the dogs. Uh, as I mentioned, it was a kind of the pug, the breed in, in particular was just favoured by the elite and the materialistic. People thought that perhaps Hogarth took kind of a bit of joy in subverting certain expectations. Um, but pugs were also offering a visual pun of pugnacity and the kind of clownish expressions that he could give them and the mischief that he could create with them in his paintings obviously just lent themselves nicely to this style of work so or he just liked dogs why not or he just liked dogs yeah <laughs> <laughs> he didn't yeah. he didn't have any children actually dogs. so uh i think he chose love to him. lavish a bit more love on on the dogs than the kids although actually he was a he was a, a founding governor of the foundling museum so it wasn't that he hated children mm. he just didn't have any <laughs> he, yeah. made, he made sure that the, the, the street urchins were looked after Do you know you can see a statue of um trump in London. Yes, I saw that in my uh, research. We should put that on the spreadsheet. It's yeah. Well, it's Chiswick High Road. <laughs> it's just Chiswick High Road, which is ne- near Hogarth's house. Um, mm. This is a modern one, though. It was only created in two thousand and one. I mean, Hogarth's with Trump as well. It's not just Trump, which is a shame. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there were there were quite a few um, statues made out of Trump over the years throughout the eighteenth century, certainly. Um, he's made in terracotta and uh, porcelain. Even Josiah Wedgwood uh, made a version of Trump out of black basalt, um, but that is that is now lost, unfortunately, to to the ether. So we will have to settle with the modern one and take a trip to Chiswick. <laughs> well, to be fair, we spent a lot of time in the gift shop, didn't we, looking for um, just something with that image of yeah. Trump with the captain's wig on. They, yeah. The gift shop people made really weird decisions about what they thought we would want to take away, like pictures of people. And we're like, no, we want we want Trump, please. They didn't have it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you closing thoughts? Did you enjoy kind of going to a gallery exhibit with our um, no tasting hats on? I did. I thoroughly enjoyed. It, it was nice to just go to a gallery again, <laughs> but uh, yeah. It was nice. But you can it learn. It made me take more, I paid attention a lot more because I knew I 
had to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were going to be tested, so you paid attention. <laughs> no, but actually, it is it is good to go to experiences like that with a particular lens in mind. Um, because otherwise, mm. you're just kind of like, I will look at the paintings and I will receive whatever. But when you're specifically looking out for certain kind of themes or stories, you think you do get quite a lot out of it. Yeah. So, our um, glasses of gift shop bought beer have run dry, which means it's time to throw the baby out with the bathwater and chug that bathtub gin instead. Cheers, everybody! Cheers! By the way, I thought throw the baby out with the bathwater might in some way be connected to the gin craze because of that woman throwing her baby down the steps. Um, but it's not. It's just a traditional German oh. saying. It's just something that the Germans do. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's just something that the Germans do. Or, I suppose, <laughs> tell you not to do as opposed to actively encourage. 